Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Peter Rose, and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or $50 for print plus online. Don't miss your chance to experience works from Tate's collection at Acme. Connected by the theme of light and spanning over 200 years, this exhibition showcases the ways in which artists have been continually drawn to this bright source of inspiration. See artists like Terrell, Kusama, Monet and Turner and explore an events program featuring films and talks from Ari Wegner and Warwick Thornton. See art in a new light. Light. Works from Tate's collection. Open daily. Only at Acme. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in late February this year was met with near-universal condemnation by Western nations. While aggression of this kind and on this scale has been relatively anomalous this side of the Second World War, Russia's disregard for the laws and institutions upholding global peace and security is far from unprecedented. In this week's episode of the ABR podcast, Ben Saul reads his commentary piece from the July issue, arguing that Western disrespect for international law, from NATO's intervention in Kosovo, to the US-led invasion of Iraq, to Australia's detention of asylum seekers, is entirely consistent with Russia's violation of a stable, mutually agreed world order. If, as Saul warns, we expect Russia and China to be law-abiding, we must also look in the mirror. Ben Saul is Chalice Chair of International Law at the University of Sydney, an Associate Fellow of Chatham House in London, and has taught law at Harvard and Oxford. This is one of a series of politics columns generously supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. Hello, and welcome to this podcast. My name is Ben Saul, the Chalice Chair of International Law at the University of Sydney. My podcast today is called The Law of the Jungle, Western Hypocrisy Over the Russian Invasion of Ukraine. The podcast is about what international law says about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as well as about the West's response to that invasion. Uh, It also talks about uh, what the international response reveals about how the West uses international law to pursue its own interests, like all countries do, but in ways which often undermine international law and the international political order which it creates. Russia's full-throttle invasion of Ukraine is so shocking because it's such a brazen assault on the post-1945 world order. Reminiscent of the Age of Empire, this is no border skirmish, but an attempt to extinguish and cannibalise an independent neighbouring country. War was first outlawed as an instrument of foreign policy by the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928, but it failed to stem the fascist and militarist aggression that consumed the globe during World War II. A more comprehensive ban was placed at the heart of the United Nations Charter in 1945, with the exception of national self-defence. This was backed by enforcement powers of the United Nations Security Council, 
which were lacking in its predecessor, the League of Nations Council. All the great powers were also included in the new UN tent, unlike in the League, where powerful non-member states ran amok, including fascist Germany and Italy, militarist Japan, and the communist Soviet Union. Respect for the sovereignty, territorial integrity, and political independence of other countries is one foundation of the long relative peace that the world has enjoyed for the past 75 years. For many centuries before 1945, war was a common and lawful tool, whether for colonizing land or seizing resources, enslaving peoples, punishing enemies, or inflicting religious dogma. It's tempting to view Russia's aggression as the death knell of the international ban on war and a return to the pre-modern law of the jungle. A permanent member of the Security Council, Russia, responsible for maintaining world peace under the UN Charter, is seeking to rebuild its empire by using overwhelming, indiscriminate and barbaric force. That view is too pessimistic. Russia's aggression is a rare exception to the rule against war that holds fast in most places, most of the time, occasional crises notwithstanding. Whereas international wars occurred on average every year from the Middle Ages through to 1945, they are now remarkably infrequent. In part, this is why they are so confronting when they do occur. The world, now a stable community of 193 independent countries, is no longer a shifting mosaic of empires and colonies. Of course, historical perspective is cold comfort to Ukraine under fire. What is more encouraging is the effort by the international community to enforce international law using the range of legal tools available. Law breaking is normal in every legal system. What matters is how the system responds. Russia has been met with heavy economic sanctions, corporate divestment, global condemnation, coalition building through the UN General Assembly, war crimes prosecutions, and numerous other legal proceedings in international and national courts, including the International Court of Justice, the European Court of Human Rights, and the International Criminal Court. Most pointedly, Ukraine's international right of self-defense includes the right to request foreign assistance to repel Russia. Many Western states are heeding the call by lawfully providing heavy military weapons and ammunition and even tactical intelligence on Russian targets. All of this has assisted Ukraine to weather Russia's attack. That more is not being done is largely a political, not a legal problem. The law allows foreign countries to throw their own forces into battle against Russia, but no one is willing to do this, unlike in the first Gulf War, when a US-led coalition repelled Iraq's occupation of Kuwait. Nuclear weapons are not universally banned under international law. As long as they exist, they will powerfully deter those contemplating using force against states like Russia that possess them. Australia too is not among the 62 countries that agreed to ban nuclear weapons in a treaty in 2017. Sanctions not being stronger or broader is likewise due to the thresholds of economic and political pain that Western governments are willing to bear, not due to any legal limits. More troubling is that most non-Western states, 
throughout our region, Asia, as well as Africa and Latin America, are simply not willing to impose sanctions at all. These notably include large democracies like India, Bangladesh, Mexico, Brazil, and South Africa. Some are even taking advantage of cut price Russian oil and gas deals, undermining the sanctions of others, or are otherwise prioritizing their military or trade links with Russia. These countries erode the capacity of international law to credibly constrain aggressors. They also freeload off the international security system, expecting to benefit from the ban on military force without shouldering any burden to maintain it. While legitimate human rights questions should be asked about who should wear the pain of sanctions, including ordinary Russians, these concern the targeting of sanctions and do not justify inaction. Simply calling for negotiations, as some of these states do, is unconscionable, since this inevitably expects the victim of aggression to make concessions to the aggressor in violation of international law. The modern law insists that Ukraine should not be pressured to give an inch of its territory. The Security Council's paralysis due to the Russian veto does not in any way preclude the right of countries to collectively defend Ukraine or to unilaterally impose sanctions on Russia. To be sure, the veto in the Security Council is a curse, but also a blessing. Giving the great powers the discretion to act or to block action through the Council was the price the world had to pay for the great powers to agree not only to be part of the United Nations at all, but also to agree to be responsible for providing and financing the global public good of peace and security. Their selective provision or failure to provide security in cases like this evidently damages international law's legitimacy in large swathes of the world. But having no entity capable of ever providing it would be far worse. It's hard to imagine the great powers today willingly surrendering their veto in our lifetime, absent some seismic event like a world war. They should be scorned, however, whenever they arbitrarily exercise their veto and shamed into more faithfully discharging their responsibilities. Legal solidarity with Ukraine is just and necessary, and more should be done by more countries. Yet, the relatively muscular international response to Russia itself exposes Western self-interest and double standards in not enforcing international law in other grave situations. Engaging in whataboutism is not a cheap rhetorical deflection of criticism of Russia. There is a direct line between Western disrespect for international law and Russia's belief that power trumps law as well as the view of many non-Western states that they should put immediate self-interest ahead of enforcing the law against violators like Russia. The US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003 was a dagger to the heart of the most fundamental rule of world order by the supposed leader of the free world. It was backed by another permanent member of the Security Council, the United Kingdom, and supplicant democracies like Australia. It followed the earlier lawless shock of the NATO humanitarian intervention in Kosovo in 1999, leading to Kosovo's forcible separation from Yugoslav sovereignty. 
These rule-breaking precedents and the impunity that followed reverberated from Moscow to Beijing and beyond. There are many other stark examples where the West or its allies have used, encouraged, or tolerated illegal military force. Just as Russia has illegally annexed Crimea as part of Russia, Morocco has annexed Western Sahara. Israel has annexed East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. And the United Kingdom maintains illegal colonial rule over Mauritius's Chagos Islands. The International Court of Justice has ruled all of these situations to be illegal. Yet, the United States has formally accepted the claims of the aggressors to every one of these territories, whether for self-serving military, security, political or diplomatic reasons. The United States also provides extensive military aid to Israel, which helps to support its de facto annexation of large areas of Palestinian territory via illegal Israeli civilian settlements. This has been condemned by the International Court of Justice and is under a separate war crimes investigation by the International Criminal Court, which sadly the US and Australia have both opposed. At the same time, the United States and Western allies like Australia refused to recognise Palestine as a state, despite most of the world doing so. 139 countries, or 72% of the world. That's more than recognised Western-backed Kosovo, with which 115 countries recognise, or Taiwan, which zero countries recognise. Uh, even Taiwan itself does not declare to be independent. Yet the United States sabre rattles about its defence as if it were a sovereign country entitled to collective self-defence. For more than two decades, Australia recognised Indonesia's illegal annexation of East Timor until it was forced by a humanitarian crisis on its doorstep to return to the fold of international law. Even then, it refused to recognise Timor's rightful maritime claims for many years. It has convicted one person and until very recently was prosecuting another for exposing Australian economic cheating in the resource negotiations. In the global war on terror, the United States has used military force from drones to special forces in dubious legal circumstances on many occasions in many countries. In recent years, Western states have generally not protested as Israel has conducted over 400 preventive military strikes on Hezbollah targets in Syria, none of which in the absence of any armed attack on Israel is justified as lawful self-defense. While Saudi Arabia was rightly lambasted for assassinating journalist Jamal Khashoggi, there has been scarcely a murmur as Israel conducted six separate assassination plots on Iranian scientists, not lawful military targets, in the past decade. These are examples of Western hypocrisy only in relation to the prohibitions on military force or acquiring foreign territory by force, and even then only in recent memory. The legacy of illegal Western violence during the Cold War and the post-Second World War decolonization period is another story. Whether we think of napalm and Agent Orange in Vietnam, carpet bombing of Laos and Cambodia, or coups and interventions in Latin America and elsewhere. As Russia threatens to use nuclear weapons, recall that the United States is the only country to ever have actually used them.
to deliberately kill large numbers of civilians to force Japan to surrender. Then there are flagrant Western violations recently of other fundamental rules of international law, like human rights and international humanitarian law or the law of war. During the war on terror, the United States government, our ally, abducted, tortured, indefinitely detained, unfairly tried, and even murdered terror suspects and civilians. Accountability is largely absent. American, British, and Australian war crimes against civilians in Afghanistan and Iraq have also so far gone unpunished. The US, the United Kingdom, and France still sell weapons to Saudi Arabia, which is busy committing war crimes extensively in Yemen. Sri Lanka is Australia's valued partner in countering people smuggling and interdicting asylum seekers, despite total impunity for Sri Lankan war crimes against the Tamil Tigers and civilians in areas under their control in the 25-year civil war that ended in 2009. The United States has shown the same hostility to international accountability that Russia is now showing. The US has long opposed and actively undermined the International Criminal Court, which Australia supports, including by imposing sanctions on it. The US withdrew entirely from the International Court of Justice when it lost a case to Nicaragua in 1986, after that court found that the United States had been illegally using military force against Nicaragua's democracy. The US routinely condemns the United States for daring to criticize it or allies like Israel. The United States comes second only to Russia in the number of vetoes it has made of Security Council resolutions. Mass violations of the human rights of asylum seekers, including Australia's illegal racist detention of tens of thousands of refugees, also warrants mention. Compare that to the open arms now offered by the West to mainly white, Christian, Ukrainian refugees. An exceptionalist United States refuses to become a party to many of the world's most basic and widely subscribed human rights treaties including those on the rights of women, the rights of children, people with disabilities and migrant workers, treaties against enforced disappearances, and treaties on economic, social and cultural rights, such as the rights to education, healthcare, food, water, housing, clothing, work, and social security, all of the basic survival rights for a decent life. It also refuses to sign treaties banning terrible weapons, like anti-personnel landmines and cluster munitions. It will not even join the quasi-constitutional Convention on the Law of the Sea, despite condemning China for violating that treaty in the South China Sea. The truth is that the West often contemptuously abuses international law, though this is often conveniently forgotten in the amnesiac political and media debate about Russia's current invasion of Ukraine. The West weaponizes international law in pursuit of its own political ends as a cudgel against its adversaries, or it ignores the law when it gets in the way of American or allied interests, knowing that geopolitical power confers impunity from enforcement. Western selectivity signals that international law is not law at all, just a smokescreen for power. The West then seems surprised when its lectures about a rules-based international order fall on deaf ears 
or when non-Western states do not rally to its cause against Russia. The West's attitude weakens respect for the rules everywhere. It invites other countries to play the same legal game. It's no accident that Russia has cloaked its invasion in concocted legal justifications such as self-defence or preventing genocide or protecting Russian nationals. They learned from the West in Iraq, Kosovo, Guantanamo Bay, Palestine or Western Sahara. As power shifts to Asia, China too has learned from us that power lets you create rules to suit yourself and bend or ignore rules that don't. Obviously, not all violations of the same international rule are morally or politically the same. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is worse than NATO's well-intentioned humanitarian intervention in Kosovo and worse even than the US invasion of Iraq, which sought to topple a regime on a legal pretext but did not intend to swallow the whole country as America's own. But these are nevertheless violations of the same fundamental rules of a stable, mutually agreed world order, all unilateral breaches of these basic rules, without consequence, weaken that order, respect for it, and the deterrent value of the rules to future aggressors. To some degree, international law will always be hostage to power and self-interest. It is a decentralised legal system created by countries in large part to serve their own interests and lacking in any universal police empowered to compel their obedience. It relies on countries acting in good faith, doing the right thing and pressuring other countries to uphold their legal bargains. But only with less selectivity and more consistency and accountability will international law no longer languish as imperial power masquerading as law, but instead fulfil its promise as a genuine means of holding states to the rules they created and pledged to obey. If we expect the likes of Russia and China to be law-abiding, we must first look in the mirror. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to AVR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the AVR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.